This is the start of our new show. Uh, great show last year, but we've had to make some changes. And one of the changes is we're going to do a little post before the show so you get an idea of what we're doing. Uh, we just did Dweezil Zappa. Yes, we did. You were, uh, <laughs> that was a good one. That was, that was a good, good one. And then we got the chance to watch uh, Dweezil work on some of uh, mixing some of his music. He's a consummate professional. Yeah, that was amazing. That's uh, a badass. You know, obviously he learned a lot from his dad. Uh, in more ways than one, he's got a work ethic like you wouldn't believe. But uh, I think it was real good. We, we listened to his album last night. It was uh, mind-blowing. And uh, now he's going to go out on the road. We'll talk about that during the session. But he's going to go out on the road and do his own stuff as well as continue doing Zappa. Uh, Zappa plays Zappa. Yep. No, that was really neat. And uh, his new record's really cool. Really, really good. And just watching him just now, working with Craig. Craig, our wonderful engineer, is fortunate enough and talented enough to be able to be involved with the, the Zappa family and uh, the uh, Zappa vaults and whatnot and is mixing Dweezil stuff. And that's a really nice nice little thing to watch just now, watching the guys do that stuff, you know. Well, you know, it's kind of an amazing Badass. thing. I mean, right <laughs> this week uh, we're recording, it's the... Uh, I guess the second full week of January, and it's been a rough year, 2016, for rock legends. Uh, obviously, we lost David Bowie. The other day, we lost Glenn Fry. Uh, Buffin, the drummer from Mata Hoople, passed the other day. Uh-huh. Um, so it's it's kind of great to see Dweezil keeping his dad's legacy alive the way that he is. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it was shocking to... to Realized that, you know, we're older than Frank was when he passed away. <laughs> Both of us are. And it's like, that was, that was kind of surprising. Uh, but definitely, it's very, very cool that he keeps his, his pop stuff going. And he's really, really good at it, you know? It's like, and now seeing him work in the studio just now with Craig, you know, see how he's able to do it, you know? Because his dad's stuff is complicated. And you'd have to, you know know what you're doing and the guy obviously does you know I mean, just he's a, you know that's he's a professional engineer you know the level he's at with the recording side of stuff it's like wow you know I, i'm like push the on button is that how we now we're going yeah it was really something else something else so we're gonna open up the show we're gonna play just a brief piece off of his new album uh we're gonna play funky 15 and we're gonna go out with a song called on fire both off his new wonderful album. Called Via Zamata, which incidentally, I mean, he tells the story of where the album title came from. Very interesting stuff. Hope you enjoy the show.
I'm Bill Cody, producer of our Chris Kirkwood show. This is Chris Kirkwood, and we have the wonderful Dweezil Zappa Hello. Uh, with us tonight. And I, we had talked before. We're just going to jump in. We heard your new record last night. Okay. And we were kind of blown away. All right. Well, that's good. So, <laughs> Tweezel, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Really cool. Really, really cool. Thanks. So you got the new record. Yeah, Via Zamata. It's, uh, it's a record. It's my first record in, in the last 10 years because I've been doing um, Zappa Play Zappa for a full decade now. And a lot of people have been saying, well, when are you going to do some of your own music again? Mm-hmm. And uh it just took a while to uh, even figure out what my own music would be after the um, experience of diving so deep into my dad's music. Right. Uh, so this record is a little bit of uh, what that is, but um, it's other things too, just because much of the material is actually uh, more than 20 years old, and I just rearranged it for for the record. And then there's some new stuff that I wrote that, is more uh, current for my state of mind having been doing Zappa music for for a while. So it's it's kind of a strange journey through my whole childhood of of being interested in music and that that's kind of why the name Via Zamata comes from a um street in Partinico, Sicily where my father's family emigrated from uh-huh. like 60 years ago or okay. more. Wow. And uh uh and so having traced our family roots, we, you know, I sort of did the same with my musical roots on this record and just sort of did a little bit of everything. Right. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know. I mean, it's so cool that the name, that's just yeah. cool to tell. But you know, yeah. what's, what's really interesting about it too, is the, the translation for, uh, Via Zamata, there's not one that is, that you could really, uh, it, the the word Zamata, I guess, in in Sicilian, or so I'm told, is just a very sort of strange word that's not used very much. But it, it uh, the loose translation is the sound of children's footsteps in a puddle. That's awesome, you know. That's and so, so <laughs> it's just uh, it's kind of a cool thing because they actually rename that street via Frank Zappa, uh-huh. uh, and so it's you know. It was always a street with a name for a sound, and now it's got another sound, right. you know, but it's still, it's like, it's a Zappa sound. <laughs> Hello. That's yeah. very cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, the record is really, it's badass, man. Oh, that's thanks. Just, that's just badass. I mean, you're, you know, I saw you uh, do Zappa Play Zappa, yeah. like we were talking about, it. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a while ago. It was the one that uh, you had Steve Vai with you. Okay, so that was the first tour, uh, that was... Ten years ago, you know, two thousand six. Was it that long ago? Yeah. Wow. And uh, I mean, for to get a handle on your dad's music, you know, um, I was going to tell you a little story. That there was yeah. a thing. Uh, your dad, I love your dad, flat out. You know, and, too. I, I, and a lot of you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he is a huge influence on me. And uh, I, I, uh, I did a thing. Friends of mine got it, like give it to me for a birthday present. And it's like 20 years ago, at least. It's a while back that, and all it was was for some reissue or something that they were putting out, you know, I think after mm-hmm. your father passed away, um, with, that asked just various musicians. It was like me, uh, like Trey Anastasio, the guy, mm-hmm. the guitar player from Fish, a few other people, you know, just little quotes, right? Yeah. And the quote that I 
I made, and I like it was cute that you know friends of mine gave it to me because I like the quote. It said, yeah. "Frank Zappa is one of the people that taught me that rock and roll didn't have to suck." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's yeah. true. You know, and uh, just like the the places that the guy went to, you know, uh, and what like it just it was what I dig about music, you know. Well, growing up in the in the house uh, around the music that he was writing or he was listening to it was interesting because uh, for me that's all I heard. So by the time I actually heard the radio when I was twelve, you know, I had only ever heard my dad's music and watched how he made music and played and the band and and all that stuff or listened to whatever he was listening to recreationally, wh- whether it was rhythm and blues records or you know, classical composer Stravinsky or, or, you know, the Bulgarian women's choir or some sort of thing that it was just not the normal uh, music for people. But in our house, that was normal. So when I actually heard the radio at 12, I just thought, where's the rest of it? What happened here? You know, like there's everything I heard was too simplistic. It didn't have all the other instruments. It didn't have the crazy rhythms so I was totally confused you know uh, I mean I grew to like music that had simplicity but um, but at, at, at first it just didn't make any sense because okay. I was like they're they're missing so many opportunities to make this so much better <laughs> I, you know it's odd that, like how much of a um, fan I am of your dad's and whatnot but what like got me into actually playing music was punk rock you know like I played I started off playing banjo as a little kid. You mm-hmm. know, I saw the movie Deliverance, got a banjo, you know, <laughs> and uh, then thought the basses looked neat. Right? Yeah. So I got a bass, you know, yep. and played that for a while. But the stuff that I listened to was, you know, beyond my ability, you know, like your dad. You know, it was just yeah. it was like I just didn't have that much. I didn't, you know, schooling. I didn't. I wasn't as like he taught himself. You know, and it was just mm-hmm. like I didn't. I was too lazy. You know, so, <laughs> so the punk rock happened, and. uh I was like, oh, this, you know, you know, I could do that. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into playing. But uh, doing your dad's stuff like that, I mean, you know, you actually learned all that stuff. I mean, it blew me away when I saw you guys. So it was pretty fucking cool because I saw Frank in the mid seventies. That would have been a good time to see the you show. Know? Yeah, oh, it was just it was awesome. It was the uh, it was the one with Bozio. Yeah. And, and Steve Vai and Patrick O'Hearn on bass. Well, you know, Steve Vai wouldn't have been in the band with Bozio, but uh, was he, he was, was he joined the band in the early 80s. Okay, so and, I'm wrong there. So it was, it was the Bozio band. It was Patrick yeah. O'Hearn and Bozio. Yeah, so sure. maybe Adrian Ballou was in the band at the time. Oh, that's time. who it was for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, good call. Yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, you know, it just, that's, this guy's a badass. You know, I just, I mean, Frank was just sick. It's just, I, it's I mean, just fucking weird shit, man. It's like, the the thing about it is, uh, for people that don't know anything about my dad's music, uh, you know, some people, you know, I mean, really, the reason that I started Zappa plays Zappa was because there there was too many instances where his music was being uh, defined in a way that didn't suit what what it was. I mean, they they were trying trying to pigeonhole him basically as a novelty act and right. just a guy that made comedy music. Right. And so, uh, on one hand, I can understand it because the, the, the few things I got on the radio were songs like uh, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, Valley Girl, Dancing Fool, stuff like that. Right. But he made over 80 albums, and those God. barely even God. reflect uh, the rest of the music. So, you know, if you've only ever heard 
those songs that got on the radio, then yeah, maybe you could think, oh, he just writes silly comedy music. But uh, essentially, uh, if you don't know anything about my dad's music, he was a self-trained classical composer. When totally. he was 12 years old, he decided he wanted to be a composer and he went to the library and he read everything he could to teach himself how to become a composer. And he was writing classical music his whole life and could write anything he could hear in his head. I mean, he could sit on an airplane and write a, a classical score. So, like, you know, leave Los Angeles, go to New York, and by the time he's there, he's got 10, 12 pages of music. But he, the whole time, you know, he could hear it in his head and write and, and just write that stuff, which is totally um, otherworldly to yeah. me. I mean, that that's just a, a crazy thing. There's so many cool stories about, for example... Um, uh, Ruth uh, um, Underwood, who who played percussion in Frank's band, who was an amazing musician, she refused to improvise because she was pet petrified. She just uh, just didn't feel like she could improvise. And my dad was always trying to encourage her to do it. And there was one time where you know he tried again, and she said, "No, no, I just can't do it." And so he said, "Okay, well then I'm going to write something that you have to play." And he, you know, made it so that she would just have to sight read this thing. But he stood on stage and he wrote this thing out, and uh, she had to play it. And it ended up becoming a song later. Uh, but it was the melody to the song Redunzel. Uh -huh. Now, if you've ever heard the song Redunzel, <laughs> this this melody it's got a lot of tricky, cool parts, but it's so exposed. It's just this melody, and. Uh, the fact that he stood there and said, "Well, I'm going to make, I'm going to write something for you," and he just wrote this thing down and then handed it to her, and that was just an <laughs> off-the-cuff melody. Like if you listen to that and you think, "Oh, he just stood there uh, and in five minutes just uh, wrote that," it's an it's an incredible talent that that he had for composing and arranging. But uh, to learn all that stuff and and play it uh, commensurate with the way that he played it was right. was really uh, like training for being in the navy seals you right. know i mean it, it was it's uh, it's quite an undertaking i studied the music for 2 years before i even put a band together wow and i don't have the same background i don't read i can't read the notes on the page i learn everything by ear and wow. uh you know but everybody in the band they can all read uh which is very important and helpful but I, because I didn't have that same kind of background, I had to learn a lot of the names of things and, and learn all of these things that I just sort of skipped over being a rock guitar player. <laughs> you know, I had to become, instead of a guitar player, I had to become more of a musician. And I had to learn uh, a lot of the, the terminology and the language and the fundamentals of all these things that I that skipped over in terms of uh, theory and harmony and and stuff like that. But I still just never had the time to to uh to learn to read really well i mean technically i could read the notes on the page but it's uh, for me to learn something i could learn it way faster just listening to it and playing right. it but everybody else in the band is is really quite uh, proficient at, at reading guys yeah yeah i think i met your bass player at the time yeah um and talked to him and i think he said something he'd gone to Meet school. You know? Yeah, like, I mean, pretty much anybody that was in a, a, a really prominent role in the rhythm section, or you know, a keyboard player, or you know, percussionist, they all had to read in, in Frank's band. In Frank's there band, was, they there did. was no way around it, right. you know. And so it was the same in, in in my band, just because the amount of stuff that you have to learn and the amount of stuff that you have to discuss in detail. 
you just have to have that background, yeah. you know? Uh, so it, it really is important, but you know, it's, it's a lifetime's, uh, worth of work to, to have that, that kind of, uh, background, uh, for, for musicians to be able to, to play in multiple different styles, uh, authentically. And, you know, so you got to find the right kind of individual that is, uh, motivated to, uh, to, to play this stuff and, and sustain the role that they're supposed to have in the band. So for example, in my dad's bands, um, he would find a lot of people that that could play difficult parts and play the things that he was writing but if they started to go off base and try to add their own thing to it or change the voicing or or this or that uh, my dad did not want any of that you know so uh he <laughs> had so a, he had a classic <laughs> phrase which you know when people started to misbehave in that way he he would just say to them window or aisle you know how do you want your ticket <laughs> right, home right. Yeah, because chicken, uh, chicken, chicken or beef motherfucker yeah because yeah. because uh, uh, you uh, you know I mean everybody was replaceable he said right. there's there's people lining up to be in this band uh, right. you know so you're either going to play it and do your job the way the music is written or you're not you know it's like so wow. <laughs> window or aisle I went to college with Ike Willis okay who ended up in your band uh, your father's band yeah uh and he just disappeared one day from engineering school, and next thing he was, we were kind of shocked, actually. Yeah. But I think he accosted your dad backstage at a show in St. Louis. Okay. That, that's the story I heard. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you never know with the stories that come from that camp, but uh, he he's definitely a talented uh, musician. You know, like, I, I remember reading a story about your pops, Yeah. What was the what was the uh, uh, the classical composer that he was went and met? Verrez. Well, he was really uh, interested in, in Edgar Verrez. Yeah, Verrez. Uh, and so he wrote him a letter, uh, and uh, he responded. Uh, right. And so I'm not sure that they ever got a chance to meet. They just corresponded and maybe spoke on the phone uh, once or twice. There's, the thing I read was like uh, he was you know corresponding with him, and Verrez asked him. Uh, like something about like what key the bassoon is in or something, you know, yeah. something like that. Right? And it, and and your dad didn't know it that yet. And he's like, yeah. well, when you figure that out, you know, and then we'll get back in touch with you or something. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, how far along are you? And like, yeah, the, your knowledge. You know, yeah. how, how big of a, much of a handle do you have on like what it actually takes to get to this? And your dad realized that he needed to do a little bit more studying. You know, or something yeah. like I don't know. It's just some story. You know, I read about well, my father. Yeah, uh, I mean, he was. Uh, uh, an encyclopedia when it came to most things. I mean, music for sure. Uh, but that was one of the things that was really always entertaining to uh, to be a part of. Uh, you know, whenever he was home from tour or whatever, you know, not working in the studio, just the downtime stuff. It was hilarious. Um, the things that we would get up to. One of the games we used to love to play was uh, try to make up words that should be in the dictionary but aren't. Uh, and so. You know, for example, you would have a uh, a scenario um, like I, I said to him, "Okay, we need to come up with a word that describes the type of individual that only ever wears a rock uh, T-shirt." You know, and this was like in the early '80s or something, and uh, and so 
he in a split second put a couple words together uh that was so perfect he said uh insignoramus <laughs> you know a combination of insignia and ignoramus <laughs> yeah and so it was uh it was but it it, it took him all of a nanosecond to just you know right. that was right. you know so we had a collection of of words uh that were you know created in in that kind of game uh but it was just uh it was fun to see how quick his mind was yeah. you know there was there's so many great examples of stories that that happened over the years he did an interview once where there was a a talk show host who um was i guess well known for having uh, had a, a war injury uh and had something wrong with his leg maybe had a, a prosthetic leg uh but he uh this was the the late 60s uh and Frank was on this guy's show and the guy didn't like people with long hair you know so he was instantly giving Frank attitude and and he said uh so with your long hair i suppose that makes you a lady and Frank said oh well i guess with your wooden leg that makes you a table <laughs> <laughs> you know, Everyone. but so this is a you know a kid in his mid twenties uh, who's not taking any shit from some conservative right. you know are talk we, show are we host. Thinking of, uh, can we say the name? I think the guy's name was Joe Pine. Oh, Joe Pine. Oh yeah. goodness. Okay. Yeah. Good name for somebody with a wooden leg. Yeah. Or, or yeah. A table. Or a yeah. table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it's it's stuff like that where he had the ability to say the exact thing that you wish you would have thought of saying oh, yeah. if you were, had the chance right. in the moment. You know, it's like most people have that that thing of like, oh, I could have said this kind of thing later on, but he just says it right there in that moment. And um, but there's you know there's so many great things you could you could research on YouTube. Uh, one of the greatest things that ever happened on TV was Frank on Crossfire on CNN during the PMRC hearings and all that kind of stuff. There was a, a time where these guys were going after Frank um, in this interview. They're all in these suits, super conservative guys. And this one guy is just, he is just losing his mind trying to, you know, get at, at Frank. And and uh, and Frank uh, just looks at him and he says, oh, you're drooling. Do you need a napkin? You know, <laughs> and at a certain point, you know, he's just sitting there like this and he's kind of just shaking his head and, you know, listening to these people, you know, say how disgusting and perverted he is and all this kind of stuff. And, and he just says, you know what? Kiss my ass. That's awesome. And, and it's like, that on live, you know, news, right? On you know, was just great. Yeah, that is great. And you know, to be raised in that environment, be raised with somebody like I mean, it had to be pretty interesting, you know, to have yeah. that as a dad to be. In, I mean, it's such a creative environment. It seemed to me, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, look at how much work he did, yeah. and uh, you know, to be self-taught like that, the level of like work, the work ethic the guy had, you know. I mean, yeah. to, make the, to be able to make band after band after band, you know, so explicitly represent your ideas, you know, to, yeah. you know, and to, to control that. And to well, come up with it, stuff he just, had, uh, I mean, he was the true definition of an auteur, like somebody that completely knows exactly what they want, knows how to do it on every level and bring that vision totally completely alive. You know, the music, the visuals, everything, you know, I mean, he made films, he made uh you know 
all kinds of uh, things, but the the thing about it is that uh, in his work, he just viewed it all as one big work, that everything was all connected. Right. Uh, so he called that project object. That was his, his definition of this whole uh, thing. It was all one big note. So if you really know so his badass. music, so badass. if you really know his music, you'll see that stuff sort of uh, arrives at different times on this timeline throughout all of his music and like little characters come in and out and they uh, they make interjections throughout the different records. Like there's little episodes with characters and things that happen in songs and and so it's it, the 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 whole um, continuity of the whole thing was all sort of pre-planned as a big, huge thing that nobody was ever aware of until you listen to the totality of the work and you go, wait a minute, like all this stuff is all interconnected and he just had this grand vision of all this stuff. It's it's really pretty intense. It, it is. <laughs> I mean, it just is. It's just, you know, it, like in, in rock and roll, uh, particularly, I mean, you know, he's right who who else does i mean there's people that have created bodies of work absolutely you know but i mean your pops is just one of the ones that made such a significant body and then just in art art in general you know and mm -hmm. it's just and it's like really it's just something else something else you know it's, it's hard just, to imagine um you know so even to put it into perspective there were a few times in the 70s where he made five albums a year <laughs> you know some yeah. bands never make five albums in 20 years right. you know yeah uh, but uh, there was one particular instance that is, uh, it changed the industry because he had a, a recording deal with Warner Brothers and uh, he, he wanted to get out of the deal because he didn't like something about how things were working out. And uh, he delivered all five albums of his five album deal all at once. You know, and so they. Uh, <laughs> we're and, done. Yeah. And so they're like, wait, you can't do that. And he's like, I just did, you <laughs> just know, did. Uh, but the, uh, so at that point, then record contracts change where they now tell you when you can and cannot record because you have like certain windows and like, there's a certain amount of time between projects and stuff. But that was because there was nothing like that before. Cause whoever would have made, you know, five albums all at once, <laughs> right. you know, and he so, could got it. Yeah. Just, so, I mean, was he, you know, did he, was he around much? Like, you know? Well, he did, was touring a lot in the 70s and he did tour a lot in the 80s too, but. And you were born in? Uh, I was born in 69. 69. But um, uh, when he started having the studio at the house, it was operational starting around uh, 1980. So he, when he was home, he was just always, always working. And so he, he would basically never really even leave the house. He didn't have a driver's license, so he didn't drive. If he had to go somewhere, you had to drive him, you know. He didn't have a driver's license? Uh-uh. He, he, uh, in the mid-60s, he, uh, he, he just said, you know what? I'm never going to stand in line at the DMV ever again, you know. So I'm just, I'm not going to drive anymore. Wow. You know, so he just... Uh, Never drove again. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, he, once he had the studio at home, you know, he basically was, was working like 16, 18 hours a day, every day, all year long. Right. <laughs> so he's in there all the time, you know, he would, we'd have dinner or, you know, I would always go in, check out what he was doing in the studio and, 
and stuff like that. But he was he was always around. He he tended to work on an opposite schedule, like work all night and then sleep in the daytime, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was usually evening hours was uh, like he's having breakfast while we're having dinner kind of thing, you know. Right. But uh, that that's just became normal for for us, you know. Well, I've kind of experienced it a little bit in that, uh, well, I don't have kids, but my brother did, right? And my brother's the guitar player in our band. Mm-hmm. And just seeing the uh, his kids, he had uh, twins, Catherine and Elmo, uh, in 83, right? When the band had been around about three, three, four years. And they grew up in that environment, you know? They grew up... Uh, with us, you know, being the band and, mm-hmm. you know, us going on tour and being music in the house all the time and that kind of a thing. And now, actually, Elmo, his son, uh, plays with us. Oh, cool. You know? Yeah, it's, it's really cool, you know? And it's and it's like, it's trippy because we didn't push me into playing guitar at all. You yeah. Know, he, got, he totally got into it on his own. And uh, kind of, we weren't around a lot, you know? Uh, yeah. In a way. And I didn't really even notice him really kind of starting to play guitar, you know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden at a point, it's just like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. It's like, he's really fucking good, you know? <laughs> to where it was like, what the hell? You know, I yeah. mean, it was just like, I mean, he's a really good guitar player, you know? He's like kind of more technically proficient in a way than his dad, you know? Yeah. Although his dad writes, you know, the majority of our stuff, you know, and is, is the, you know, the guy that does that in our band, you know? Yeah. And uh, yet there's still something there that's like... Like, we don't practice that much, you know? And he mm-hmm. just kind of joined, you know, it's yeah. like, like, you know, we live in different towns now. Yeah. You know, we get together to play, and, and after a couple of gigs, kind of get the, you know, yeah. gets going again. But we don't really practice. And so he just kind of moved into the into the job, you know, just like we, his dad wanted to include him in it. And it's, you know, fun to have him be able to, you know, be on the road with us. It's neat, yeah. you know, it's family stuff. So, it's, I mean, it's all three of us family now in yeah. our drummer. You know, and our drummer is Shannon Somm, who's Doug Somm's kid. So there's more, you know, from the uh, Sir Douglas Quintet. Yeah. Right? Which goes back to, like, when your dad was starting and stuff, yeah. you know. So it's just the rock lifestyle weirdness. But but uh, there's the family noise, you know, the family, like, yeah. sound, right? Because there's parts where we go off, you know, where we, like, improvise. Yeah. Right? Where things go ahead and kind of head out and where they're going to go. and uh, And it's just... I don't know, some genetic, like the way that, you know, he can fit in with that, you know, it's just... It's just normal. Yeah, you know, it's just the, like the, the family sound, you know, and yeah. I noticed that like listening to your new record, you know, there's some parts where it's like, ah, it's the Zappa sound, you know, there's, it's the, you know, there's it sounds Zappa-esque, you know, and, yeah, and, but I mean, it's you. Yeah, the thing about this new record uh, is that... Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, when you make it your own record, what what is it going to be like? What is your music like now? Because when I started playing guitar, uh, the, the most popular music in the world was hard rock and heavy metal. So, right. of course, I was influenced by Edward Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. And, you know, I love my dad's music. But uh, that was uh, when when you're just starting out on guitar and you listen to his guitar playing or his music like the Black Page or these difficult things, you think, well... One day, you know, <laughs> uh, let me let me start, you know, uh, a little bit lower down the the, the ladder here, but uh, but not to say that uh, Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes playing is easy by any stretch because that stuff is very technically Play. challenging. But uh, that's the stuff that I got sort of really started on, and my earlier records are more hard rock related. Um, 
So, you know, this record bears no resemblance to any of my earlier records. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's also not in any way trying to be like uh, some uh, bridge between my music and my dad's music. It's just uh, it, it, the, the thing that I wanted to do with the record was express where I am currently um, musically, but also I wanted to, because of that whole experience of, of like tracing my family roots, I wanted to do something musically that kind of did that where I, I thought... I want to bring in all kinds of textures and and things from all the things that ever made me like music, whether it was the Beatles or the Beach Boys or any kind of rock stuff or, you know, something from the 80s or whatever. So there's all these elements that come in in different ways uh, in the record. It's it's almost, uh, I mean, if you related it to food, I mean, it's a crazy stew. You know, it's there's, there's just a lot of uh, different things that are happening. Uh, so... It, it's really more about textures, and I think that um, it's also, I guess for lack of a better description, it's more of like a singer-songwriter record. Uh, and so I think when people initially might be thinking, oh, I wonder what that record is going to sound like, it's probably not exactly what they pictured, because it's not, it's not about like uh, everything having crazy time signatures and... I mean, there's a little bit of that, you know, but, uh, uh, but there's but, definitely some Beach Boys in there. I could hear that for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's funny cause I, I didn't grow up like loving the Beach Boys, but I, I appreciated what the, you know, the, the, the sound of the harmonies and the fact that there was, uh, you know, in the sixties and seventies, there was, there was a lot of great arranging happening where the vocals were. Uh, doing what now is done with just only synth pads and things. It was basically all these like vocal harmony stuff that would be supporting the chord progression and, and sort of voice leading to the next part. And there was all these really cool things that were happening in, in records of that time, and it sort of disappeared in, in modern record making. Uh, so, you know, I brought a little bit of that back just because it's something I just always liked. So I thought, you know, let's just use it in in this but there's a song called rat race where it has a sound that that does sound a bit like the the beach boys but it's it's kind of like the beach boys mated with the bulgarian women's choir and this is the the, the bizarre love child um so i have uh you know a lot of different interests in in, in music and and this was just a way to to try to pull it all together but it was it was also fun to to you know, get to do things that I'd never done before, write uh, for a string quartet and some brass sections. And then I got to have uh, Jeff Emmerich, who recorded many of the, the Beatles records and so many other, you know, great recordings. He came in to uh, help out with the strings and the brass. And so it's just another layer of sort of rock and roll history to to be able to have that you know, experience, uh, and it was just, you know, it was, it was a fun time, but it, it, it helped create a character for, for the sound of the record. Did you like, I mean, actually write it out? I mean, can you, you... what I do is I write all the parts, uh, on guitar and I just record them on separate tracks. And then, uh, when it needs to be written out for other players, the bass player in my band is really quite good at that. So uh, he can just put it into Sibelius and then uh, create uh, charts that are the right key for the right instruments. And 
and stuff like that. But, but you know, I, I do all of the, the work. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll make a MIDI file of something and then I'll send it to him mm. uh, that way. So, for example, like um, uh, Funky 15, uh, all the lines, the crazy lines that are in that, I did all that with a MIDI file. And, um, you know, some of the, some of the, the ways that I start writing these days is very different than before everything was related to, uh, just being a guitar riff. And, and so if, if you looked at the music as a picture of a house, you know, and like all the instruments have to be in the house, uh, in the past, my guitar music would have meant that my guitar had to sit on top of the house. You know, it was like it was only about the guitar, you know. <laughs> right. And so now it's more about uh, because of my experience of being in uh, an ensemble and playing to work where you create this this thing where everybody has a role and you propel this this music together. It changed how I play guitar in, in so many ways. Um and so this record is more reflective of that, where it's it's uh, it's the guitar takes a back seat to a lot of things, and you know, like when you listen to this record, uh, the things that really drive a lot of the material is the bass line or the you know the the vocal harmonies and the vocal melody and and stuff like that. So it's very different than uh, some of my other records, mainly for that that reason. There's still plenty of guitar on there. It's just that it's not. It's not Van Halen style where it's right. like totally in your face, right. you know. Uh, and I love that stuff too, but it's uh, this this was just a totally different, you know, uh, approach. Well, speaking of Van Halen, there's that one story. I mean, I think people know this, but the, how your pops heard Eddie and thought he was cool and invited him over to the house. Well, it's a strange <laughs> thing. I'm not 100% certain how this happened because from my experience, uh, what it was, was we just randomly received a phone call one day from a guy saying it's Eddie Van Halen. Turned out to be Eddie Van Halen. And then he came over uh, maybe 20 minutes later. Uh, but it's one of those things. like this. So you have to imagine, okay, I'm 12 years old. I'm listening to only <laughs> Van Halen and, and Randy Rhodes with Ozzy Osbourne. And some guy calls and says he's Eddie Van Halen. Now, at this time, there's no MTV. Uh, you know, there's nothing like MTV Cribs. There's nothing where you can see all these musicians that you know uh, so well from listening to their music. I mean, in that time frame, you would sit and you would listen to music for hours and hours. You'd play a record or, you know, a couple records, and you'd sit for hours and just listen to that stuff and read the liner notes or look at the album cover and you would imagine all these things about like what are these people like you know who how did they make this and 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 now nobody has that experience because you know it's all online and people think music is free and and all this stuff but they they don't have that that connection so the point of the story is that uh i didn't even know what eddie van halen's voice sounded like i'd never i've seen pictures of him but i never heard him talk there right. wasn't this like ubiquitous thing of of being able to see interviews anytime you like uh with the people that make music and so it was a rare thing to to see anything where you could even hear him talk or anything like that it just didn't happen so uh he came over, uh, and uh, he he was wearing the the jumpsuit from Women and Children First. So like when he walks up the stairs, 
I mean, he might as well have been backlit with a smoke machine and like a cape, like a superhero. You know, it's like, oh, you know. And uh, but he he shows up, and um, first thing that uh, you know when he walks in, uh, he he brought this purple guitar that he had that was. Uh, had a piece of tape over the headstock um, uh, because he was starting to work with Kramer guitars, but he didn't want anyone to know what brand of guitar it was. And he brings this guitar over. First thing that happens was, you know, I said, okay, you got to play Mean Street and you got to play Eruption, you know, like, and I saw him play it like up close and, and I, it was like just burned into my mind because now you can look on YouTube and you can yeah. see how people play stuff Back then, you just had to imagine it, but yeah. to be able to see it up close, just like that, was you know. I mean, I will never forget like seeing that. Just like that's how he does it, you right. know, that kind of thing. And uh, so it was. It was a really great experience. But uh, what was uh, really funny was that the very first thing I ever recorded was called "My Mother Is a Space Cadet," right. and, and it. yeah, and I was I was twelve years old. I had only been <laughs> playing guitar for about that. nine months. <laughs> And uh, uh, the studio had only just been functioning at the house for a little more than a year. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow or another, my dad uh, t- uh, convinced Edward to uh, produce this this single of of mine. And so here's Eddie Van Halen in the studio with Don Landy, the engineer who did it, the first few Van Halen records. And they're at, at, at our studio, you know, uh, at the house. And... Um, uh, you know, we're all 12. We don't know anything about recording or anything like that. And here's Eddie Van Halen saying, I don't know what to do with these guys. You know, like, do we have to take a milk and cookie break? You know, <laughs> it's like, right. you know, uh, so it was, it was pretty funny to, uh, um, to, to do that. But I, I remember, you know, he was teaching me how to, uh, punch in and do all these things that, you know, you learn to do when you work in a studio back then it was, you know, analog tape and, and so you had to learn to play along uh, before the punch in and, and all these things that, uh, you know, I got to learn all this cool stuff from working with Edward, working with my dad in the studio. So it was really, you know, a great way to learn about making music and <laughs> yeah. stuff. You know? yeah. you're, you're still friends with him. Yeah. 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 That's, that's uh, a long time. To... So, yeah. Did you uh, just jumping to another artist that that I very much dug that was an associate of your of your dad? Um, did you ever meet? Did you hang out with Captain Beefheart? A little bit. Uh, he wasn't around the house all that much, uh, but he would call up uh, occasionally, you know. And so I can remember picking up the phone and and you know you would have these oddball moments where it'd be like you know some voice at the other end of the phone going, "Uh, do <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. I got a platypus in my briefcase. Really? And then it's like, hold on, you know, because it's like, hey, Frank, Captain Beefheart's on the phone. Really? You, know? Wow. you know, so it's just like... I got a platypus. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, it's just you get used to a certain kind of uh, vernacular uh, with certain individuals. But like uh, Johnny Guitar Watson was, uh, you know, one of my favorites. And, you know, he would come over sometimes and he was just always so crazy uh but in the best way uh but you know you wouldn't see him for for a long time and and the way that he would greet you you know he'd walk into the house and he'd be in his like you know wild outfit you know full-on pimp you know outfit hat and feather and the whole nine yards and 
he'll come and he would tweezer man get out of here that's that'd be the way he would say hello and then you tell him a story and like, oh man that's heavy that weighs a million pounds you know <laughs> but he was just always you know just amazing like the stuff he did on frank's records i mean the vocals like the song in france with all that improv stuff and he's so amazing on andy and and just there's a there's a lot of great tunes um that uh that he's on and you know he was one of frank's biggest influences growing up as a guitar player um i remember you know uh, frank talking about uh how johnny guitar watson did a um a recording called Space Guitar, and it was one of the first recordings that had reverb, like, you know, actual reverb added to a guitar track, so they had, like, a reverb tank or, you know, some sort of spring reverb or something, and it was, he just was playing some guitar parts, but it had reverb on it, so it was Space Guitar, you know? <laughs> you know, it's like, now it's, reverb is just, it's so common, but right. then it was like, this is this amazing new thing called reverb, you know? Space Guitar. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, uh, Frank, Frank loved his playing, and for good reason, you know, he was, he was a badass, uh, but amazing piano uh, player as well. Um, but they, they did some great stuff together. They always wanted to make a, a record called Frankie and Johnny, but they didn't get to do it, you know. Oh, jeez. So who else did you get to meet? Was like uh, the Beatles ever come over? No, Beatles didn't come over. Um, but, uh, you know, it, the thing is, it wasn't, uh, as people imagine, it wasn't like this, um, uh, you know, revolving door of celebrities coming over or anything like that. My dad was pretty antisocial, really. He didn't have, like, a a bunch of friends. He was constantly working, you know. uh, And he was was serious about the work when he was doing it. So there's, you know, he he was always making sure that uh, he was working with people that could do stuff quickly and do it right within a few takes, you know. I mean, if you... If you weren't that person, you were not in the band, you know. Right. Uh, and um, you know that's how he was able to make records of the quality that he made uh, as fast as he made them, because he was working with people that could do what was required of them, you yeah. know. And he uh, he could do all the things that he was asking of people, uh, you know. He could show them, okay, well, here's how you do it. Here's how you count it out. Here's how this, and you know, so. It wasn't ever like, uh, let me come up with this impossible idea that nobody could ever do. It's like, well, if I could do it, you know. So it was that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but because um, he worked with a lot of orchestras and uh, and different people who would think, oh, this rock guy, he's going to come in and conduct us. This guy doesn't know anything. And then he would always surprise them because he knew way more than they ever thought and was really, really serious about stuff. But as far as, you know, people coming in the house, there, there weren't too many other times. There was a, a, a famous funny story about um, Bob Dylan came to the house one time because he was wanting to talk to Frank about maybe working on a, on a project. And at the time, I think uh, he was having some sort of a, uh, existential crisis and was, it was almost kind of like a, uh, a time where he was, he was, um, considering writing music that was almost like born again kind of themes right. and and stuff like that 
and my dad was just not interested in 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 that stuff but uh but the the button to the story is that we had a dog named Doggus and Doggus never barked at anyone but Doggus hated Bob Dylan for some reason I don't know why Doggus was just barking at Bob Dylan Bob wearing a hat I'm not sure what was up but my my dad said I'm sorry my dog hates Christians <laughs> Yeah. This isn't going to work out. The dog <laughs> yeah. hates Christians. Yeah, the dog vetted the project. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there's there's so many crazy stories, though, about, um, you know, Frank and working situations. There's another really <clears throat> good one about uh, uh, someone who was auditioning for the band. Um, so it was a, a, a woman that was um, a good musician. She... she just wasn't right for the the job, but she she auditioned and Frank said, "Okay, well, thanks for coming in." She said, "Oh no no no, uh, please listen to me play, uh, you know, uh, piano." And he says, "Okay," and so she plays and and uh, he says, "Okay, uh, thanks for coming in." She said, "Oh, you're making a big mistake. Please, you know, uh, let me let me play this for you or whatever," and uh, and he says to her, um, "Have you heard the story of the carpenter?" And she said, "No." He says, "Well." There once was a carpenter, and he built a door, and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I heard, maybe maybe it's Steve Vai oh, story. The, the Ronstadt story? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Like, yeah. you know, like your dad told him, can yeah. you do this, do that? Like, Yeah. It, he, well, Steve was auditioning, and, uh, and uh, my dad was having him um, play all these different time signatures and, and play one figure and then change the feel and, you know, play like five over three or, you know, uh, play it, uh, reggae in seven, eight or, you know, this this kind of thing. And and he, he keeps testing Steve to see if uh, he can do all this stuff. And and he's doing all right. And then finally, you know, Steve says, that's impossible. Uh, and Frank said, well, I hear Linda Ronstadt's looking for a guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> but then he like said, but then yeah. but he had the job though too. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> but that was the thing. My dad definitely, um, liked, you know, he probably already knew like within the first couple of minutes that Steve was going to be perfect for the job, but he just kept seeing how far he could take right. the idea, you know, cause that's what the, one of Frank's biggest talents was that he could see in, in people what they couldn't see in themselves. Right. And say, like for example, George Duke never considered himself a singer and didn't ever uh, know anything about synthesizers. Frank sent him home with a synthesizer and said, "Learn how to use this thing." And he was like, "Oh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't. Why would I need to play this thing, you know?" But then he became one of the greatest synthesizer, uh, you know, players ever uh, with cool sounds and cool feel and the pitch wheel, mod bin, all this kind of stuff that. He became that became like a signature thing, but you know he was more of a traditional pianist and was only really into jazz. And so Frank would make him do these real simple one four five doo wop things and just straight up triads. And and he would look at Frank like, "Are you serious? You know, I like why I can play all this stuff, and you want me to play that?" And he says, "Well, that's what the part requires. Are you above this?" You know, and and he he had sort of like an ego check, like thinking, oh, you know, I I just need to think about what's required for the music and not be thinking that I always have to play these extensions and all this kind of stuff, you know. And so, 
he loved working with with Frank because there was uh, always ways to stretch what the you know the possibilities were and he became a great singer and uh you know his vocal on Inca Roads is you know is is a classic and uh but none of that was anything that he ever would have done Frank just kept saying okay you're going to do this and it's like oh I can't do that and, and so but he he wow. could and he did <laughs> wow yeah. so now your father's music's getting played like a if I'm not mistaken, I think like I've heard that it's being uh, like more seriously considered by like uh, the classical world. There's definitely more orchestras around the world that are playing the music because there's um, a younger generation of uh, conductors and orchestra directors and all that. The old guard, um, you know, it's changing over. So there's more considerations for modern composers and and things uh uh so his music has has been played uh, uh, a bit more over the years uh and i think it will continue to be looked at uh as uh, it's you know orchestras uh the average person can't tell uh what's really going on if if they ever make mistakes and stuff because you know orchestras make tons of mistakes all the time you know but people just think, oh, this is amazing. You know, it's classical music. You know, these these are the best. You know, these people. But, uh, you know, they typically don't have a lot of rehearsal for a lot of things. And, and some of the rhythms in Frank's stuff are, are really complex. Yeah. So uh, it becomes pretty problematic. Um, you can't just go up and sight read the stuff is the point. You know, yeah. like you, you need to play through some of these things. Um and uh, even the best musicians in the world will have a hard time with uh, with a lot of Frank's classical music because it it's just got tricky entrances uh, for certain things and and it pushes the boundaries of the range of the instruments, you know. <laughs> so badass. Yeah. It's <laughs> just so badass. So I have a quick question. So yeah. you you've done Zappa does Zappa for mm-hmm. quite a while. You're <laughs> going years, out behind yeah. your your new record mm-hmm. is that a little intimidating, or? Well, the challenge of it is totally different um, because uh, when I made the Via Zamata record, I didn't have it in my mind to say, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna immediately go put this together and go play it on tour." I was like, "Well, I'm just gonna make a record and see see what it's like to just be in the studio and be in a creative space." So the songs were never really performed like you would perform them on stage. Like we didn't cut the track and say, okay, you know, take one complete song, vocal, all that stuff. Like most of that stuff just sort of happened over the the course of being in the studio. So now it's like we're actually in rehearsals for the tour and we're putting the stuff together and learning some of these things. Um, And a lot of the songs are trickier than, uh, than you would think when you have to actually put all the pieces together to make them to make them work as a, as a performance, you know, with all the background vocals and all these other little textures. And so things that seem like they're not as complicated are, are actually more complicated than they, they appear. Like even a song like Rat Race, which kind of feels got a a good driving rhythm kind of thing but it has all these quirky little things that that change the vocals come in in strange places and um 
it's it, it was all what felt right uh, in the studio. But then when you when you play, you're like, wait a minute, what was I even thinking? This is hard, you know. <laughs> so yeah, there is a big challenge. Uh, even though I wrote the stuff, I'm still I'm uh, at this point uh, having been away from the uh, you know the recording process and now just being in, in the process of trying to put it together. I'm just listening to it like anybody else would be trying to learn the song and go, why is it like that? <laughs> you know, Chris, but I'm Chris the one said, that wrote it. Chris had that, uh, the, you remember the All Tomorrow's Parties? Yeah. Uh, I always remember uh, they, they invited the Chris and the Meat Puppets to play, uh, what was it, Meat Puppets 2 first? Yeah. And I, I said to him, I go, you know, you're playing Meat Puppets. He goes, oh yeah, I heard we we're going to play a bunch of stuff off that. And I said, no, you're supposed to play the record all the way through and... Chris goes. I don't think I know how to play the record all the way through. <laughs> um, then they asked. Then we they had us do a, a song uh, album of ours, uh, "Up on the Sun," yeah, which came out in '85, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh my god, I mean, I had to <laughs> flat out go back and you know re- relearn it, and found that my younger self was a really good bass player. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was like, whoa, god, yeah. what cool cool ideas you know yeah. just, and it, i mean it was a kind of a strange experience to like uh to come up against myself like that you know yeah and because you know i'm 55 now you know i started the band we started the band uh, i was 19 you know yeah. so it's just it was odd it was just a little bit odd you know and, well uh, there there's that experience of you're when you're in a creative space uh and you're making a record and you make the decisions that you make at that time you know there there's a rhyme and reason to it all but then when you have distance away from it you're like what the hell was i thinking you know so but and it's it's all good like my experience of trying to to learn this stuff to to put it together for for a tour for via zamata is revealing lots of um things uh and and making me have to work harder uh, to be better at certain things that I should be better at anyway. So it, it just, it's like, it reveals some weaknesses uh, that you can improve on. And uh, and that's kind of uh, been one of the, the, the biggest parts about um, putting it together in a live situation is, is uh, I have to basically just really train to, to do stuff in a different way, you know. Uh, singing and playing is not something I've done uh, a whole lot of I've never had to actually be like the lead singer for anything. I mean, it's not something I ever said. Hey, I want to be a lead singer. It's just not what I. But on this record, I did the lead vocals on on most of everything because it just had more of the personality of the song for me to do it. You know. Uh, but now having to learn to sing and play <laughs> the stuff, I'm like, this is much. Much more difficult than uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so oh, but, singing's a strange thing. You know? Yeah. I mean, like punk rock. Like when we started, my concept of singing. I don't know if you ever heard me puppets at all. Like, but like, yeah. like our first album. For one thing, we were fucking tripping our balls off when we made the thing. Right. <laughs> the whole it was like three days of psychedelic yeah. fucking wonderland. But you know, I I was like trying to make my eyeballs explode. You know, that's like my concept of singing was you know see if I could yeah. fucking actually you know, make blood come out of my fucking ears or something, you know, just screaming our fucking asses off. It's like, yeah. almost like, uh, 
you know, that John Lennon went through that scream therapy or whatever. Yeah. There's a, you know, mm-hmm. Werner von Braun or something. Not yeah. Werner von Braun, um, but you know, that's the rocket scientist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something. I know, you know, but it was just like screaming, right? And punk rock, like, I mean, it really, really just wailing our asses off. And, uh, and then, you know, went from there to a little more sing- so- singy kind of stuff. Little yeah. singy, and then we started getting into harmonies and stuff, yeah. you know. And, and now, you know, I mean, we, you know, my brother sings lead on, you know, mostly, and then I've seen most of the backup stuff. And I find it, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's like, at points, I'm just terrible. I'm like, like, you know, I think that you can even find, like, uh, on YouTube or something, like, outtakes. You know how they, like, took Linda McCartney's yeah, vocals yeah. and put them up there yeah. solo, right? Because yeah. she's kind of out of tune. I think there's shit like that about me on, on like, <laughs> where it's like, ah, fucking old Uncle Grandpa's fucking, yeah. you know, good and missing the notes, you know, and it's... it's yeah. Yeah tough thing and last year I, and last couple of years i did a thing with my girlfriend i put together a little project uh i called it uh playing possum yeah it's all like mostly george jones you know another one of yeah one of the artists that's up there like you know where your dad is to yeah. me you know and um i played guitar on it uh and sang you know yeah. lead and my girlfriend played bass she plays upright bass and, yeah and we played, you know, some shows, and, and it was a whole different ball of cheese, you know. For one thing, I never, like, you know, I play guitar forever. You yeah. It's like, you know, because I play bass and stuff, but to actually play guitar on stage, you know. Yeah. And it was just acoustic, and I was just, you know, yeah. strumming along. But then singing lead was a whole other, you know, it was just like, oh, Lord yeah. God, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is definitely, um, uh, it's a lot of responsibility, uh, you know, just, just even remembering the words, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, you can get a teleprompter for that. Oh, they have yeah. those. Yeah, you yeah. get the little teleprompter down in front there. <laughs> yeah. Are you using the same band or same band? That's uh, Zappa plays Zappa. Yeah. Has yeah. it been the same guys for uh, like mostly had, pretty much? We've had some changeover over the years, but uh, this band has been together in this format uh, for the past, uh, I think, three years. Uh-huh. So it's a it's a pretty. Um, energetic uh version of the band it's the youngest uh overall version of the band uh, in terms of age range uh i'm the oldest uh, oldest at 46 you know but uh um you know it's uh, that was one of the, the goals in putting the band together for zappa plays zappa anyway was to make sure that it, it was a a more youthful uh, group of musicians because for it to sort of uh, be adopted by a, a new and younger generation, they would have to feel like they could relate to uh, a younger band. You know, it's right. uh, uh, a 12-year-old is not necessarily going to uh, be responding to, like if, if, for example, I was playing with only alumni you know, people that were close to my dad's age or, you know, in the, you know, the band at the time. I mean, we're talking about people that are all in their late 50s up to 70s. Right. A 12-year-old kid's not going to be into that rock band, you right. know? So it's like, uh, and, and the whole other point is that uh, you want other generations to be able to see, oh, it's possible for different generations to learn to play this music uh, and play it commensurate with the way that it was played by the the other generations of musicians. It's about playing the music as it's written and carrying that forward in the same way that you know orchestras play Mozart or Beethoven or whatever, and they 
they're playing what's on the page because right. it's written to sound that way. Right. You know, the people don't take a piece of music by a famous composer uh, like that and and say, oh, let's modernize it. And they don't get, you know, Kanye West to come in and go, yeah, Beethoven, yeah, Kanye. You know, I mean, they don't like, uh, you know, they don't they don't try to say this is what it has to be for it to be, you know, appreciated by a, a new audience, right. you know. It's it just needs to be appreciated for what it is, right. and that's what we do with my dad's music. It's just really about trying to present it uh, like a repertory ensemble and say, okay, here is how it's written, right. and here's how it appeared on these records, and we uh, we play the the written parts as they are, and then the improvisational parts we play, uh, you know, in the moment at at that time, so they are truly extemporaneous. Uh, but, you know, that being said, with my own playing, um, I try to sort of imbue whatever I'm doing to be evocative of Frank's playing, not only in the tone, but also I try to speak the same language. I, I don't want when I'm playing a solo to uh, to make it take a total left turn and not uh, be in context to the music. You know, I want it to still seem like this is kind of the same stuff Frank would be saying with his guitar, you know, but I still get to do my own version of it. It's just, uh, I learned a lot of his phrasing and his idiosyncrasies and his vocabulary so that I can do kind of what he would do, but I get to do it in my own way. And I'll use some of his actual phrases as guideposts throughout a solo, but I'll fill in the blanks. Uh, you know, so it's just so a, cool. Yeah, it's it's about trying to make it stay in context because, you know, I don't I don't want to hear it just take a complete left turn right. and and then not be like what what I know the music to be. You know, oh, that's a really cool thing that you're doing. I think <clears throat> you know, and and it's people appreciate it. I mean, you go for around sure, the world yeah. with it, right? And yeah, you know. I mean, we've been doing it for ten years all over the world. So <laughs> it's because because your dad, like. Uh, like you said, I mean, he got had some stuff on the radio, but it was kind of the quirkier th things here yeah. and there. Um, I don't know if he was that, that huge of a like of a, a artist in a way. Like, well, I mean, he he, definitely... he did very big tours, uh, you know, playing for ten, twenty thousand people right. in in the seventies and eighties and stuff like that. But um, you know, he he never had radio play but really. The... I mean, he would have he had occasionally like. Uh, a certain song that would become a big hit, uh, but it would be something that would be in Europe that would never be on the radio here. Like, for example, the song Bobby Brown um, was one of his biggest hits. And so you have all these Europeans uh, singing along to, to this, this song about a radio DJ that gets into S&M and sits on the Tower of <laughs> Power and is into golden showers and all that stuff. And, and they're singing along to this, having no idea. They just like the melody, you know, but it's like the, uh, but, you know, it's like got a cheerleader here, you know, get her to help with my paper, you know, maybe later I'll rape her kind of thing. Uh, th those lyrics that, you know, they just sing along, no problem. Uh, but that was like, yeah, but that's a, like a joke, you know, song. Um but that was a huge, it was like a, a number one hit in Scandinavia and, wow. and a couple places. Uh, and so when, we rarely play that song. But uh, when we have played it in Scandinavia, we just play the song and the whole audience will stand up and sing it karaoke style. Wow. Trippy. Which is really hilarious. <laughs> Trippy. Yeah, that, that happened to, that happened to uh, Shannon, our drummer. Shannon, you know, his dad, Doug Som, had uh, 
had that song Mendocino. That was a hit. Mendocino, Mendocino, with the Sir Douglas Quintet, mm-hmm. and uh, she's about a mover. It was a pretty, it was a big hit, you know. So then he went on to have the Texas Tornadoes uh, with uh, uh, Freddie, Fender. Freddie Fender and Flaco Jimenez and Augie Myers on keyboards and stuff. But like he uh, got real popular in Scandinavia. Yeah, you know, like and would it later, you know, in his later career. And like would spend a lot of time over there, you know, like actually, you know, just, I don't know, just got big over there, you know, yep. like big it's, in Scandinavia. It's <laughs> weird. It's weird where, um, certain kinds of things, uh, just get in sync with a certain, you know, population. Um, even when we tour, one of the biggest markets still is Scandinavia, uh, Sweden and Norway. Um, uh, people just really appreciate Frank's music. And they get into it, and it's younger generations. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a real wide cross section. But it's uh, it's funny because you know, um, in some ways, uh, those those areas are kind of conservative, and in some other ways, they're they're at the forefront of of other you know things. Like it's not uncommon for you know public nudity and all kinds of stuff in those places. Right. It's like yeah, well, you know, it's just the human body, but. Uh, but you know the rest of the world is all puritanical and freaking out about stuff like that. You know, so it's just it's it's funny they they do dig it um, there. But uh, some of the craziest audiences um, that have really responded uh, in the most sort of boisterous way is uh, we were in South America um, in uh, uh, Argentina and they were pretty well into it there uh, and. Uh, also, uh, Montreal, it's always a crazy, huge reception for the, the music. So it's, it's not places that you'd expect. I mean, we have places in the U S that are, you know, uh, traditional hotspots like New York, you know, was always a big place for, for Frank and, and stuff, but it's, it's the, the unusual locations that you're like well, yeah who would have thought you know that uh, year after year it's it's uh, these same places right. that just really well i would imagine it. you know that uh i mean just the people that just loved your dad you know what i mean it's like it's like me pups ain't that popular you know we never been that popular and like had a little bit of commercial success went up but the, like managed to play for a long time mm-hmm. and the people that like us really like us you know and they just you know they're like grew up with us yeah you know and still come out and stuff and i imagine that there's people that you know have that affection for your dad you know well there definitely are right. um but i mean the thing is uh it's it's also an aging uh fan base right. so you know 10 years ago when we first started this you would see a lot of people in their late 50s into their you know middle 60s and uh, 10 years later, those same people are in their 70s or maybe not even alive anymore, right. you know. And so uh, it's not that this same people, you know, the same section just is the only thing carrying the music forward. Right. We're, by doing what we've been doing, you know, it was really important to try to reach a younger audience to just say, hey, you know, you don't even know what you're missing. Right. So here's a chance to check this out. And if yeah. you get into it, you know, then great. But and so we do see a lot more uh, younger people under 30 and, and stuff like that coming to the shows. But when we started, uh, there were if you would have asked most people under 30, hey, what do you know about Frank Zappa? Uh, a lot of people just said, who? 
you know? And so that was just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, there's something about like the internet there, you know, one of the things I've noticed, uh, just with our band is that there, we have young folks coming out to see the shows, you know, as and a lot of people that are you know, our age have been coming yeah. to see us for decades and stuff, but there's also kids coming out, you know, all the way down to, I was in Long Island last year and, this 19 year old kid was just putting me through my paces you know it's just like yeah. talking about all these tracks you know all these yeah. albums it's yeah. like fuck i don't even remember that album yeah you know, let alone the song you know what yeah. I mean? and it was like damn and i mean he's 19 you know and it was just you know so and i think some about maybe the internet you know how people can now discover artists like that yeah you know, find these bodies of work you know and fall, get it you know get at them because they're so available you know because of the technology that's around yeah you know, so, but I mean, what you do is very, very cool, you know, and it's just got to be a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of work, but when you're doing it, it is fun. It's the same as, you know, seeing Frank shows. I mean, I, they would rehearse three months, even if the tour was only uh, a, a month. You right. know, they'd rehearse for three months for a month long tour, wow. you know. Uh, oh, that was, it, it was bad. It was, it was like bulletproof, you know. Yeah. Way. Uh, but. You know, they worked really hard to be able to to play the stuff the way that uh, that it was played, but then they had fun because they had you know worked really hard to do it. So the the dichotomy there is that the audience thinks, oh well, you know, it must just be kind of easy to do that. It was like you try <laughs> totally, you <know>? totally. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's what's yeah. so watching you view it. You know, yeah. I was just going, oh, this is cool as shit. I mean, because you yeah. like you're playing the stuff. You know, yeah. and like all of a sudden it's like I know here comes this part's gonna come up, and it's like and oh 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 oh. You know, yeah. it's like damn. Well, that so. was one of the things too that I did uh, that's different um, is that I added uh, the guitar to certain arrangements in places that hadn't been before. But not to make it like a big rock feature, just to add it into the ensemble. Uh, like for example, I played the the melody on uh, Saint Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast and on Inca Roads and all these things that were written for the marimba. And the reason that I did it was to learn the music and and see what it's made out of, but also to show the audience what my dedication to the music is, because you can't see over the the shoulder of the keyboard player or the marimba player or anything. You you know the audience just sees that oh yeah this music is being played. And they can't see the challenge that's there, but you can see it on the guitar. When you see the like where it all has to be, you're like, right. wait a minute. You know? oh, no. I mean, the, God, the marimba playing. I mean, your dad, like uh, Ruth Underwood, that shit, yeah. she did, what the fuck, you know? It's Amazing. Like, just nuts, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, I don't even try to imitate it with my mouth, you know? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh. Yeah, I, just I, listen I, to uh, St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. That's the hardest one-and-a-half-minute song ever written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, and the amount of time I spent, you know, just tripping out to your dad's music flat out, you know? That's well, just, you should listen to it know? not tripped out, and then you'll probably trip out even more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been great having you. Thank um, you. It is really amazing, uh, the what you've done to keep your dad's legacy alive. But yeah. well, I think we want to end with, you know, we were truly blown away by your record. Yeah, man. Oh, thanks. Really, really cool. I yeah. appreciate cool. it. Yeah. People we're, should come out and see you. We're going to do some touring this year. Um, we have a few West Coast shows that we're going to do in February on the, the 12th and the 13th. Uh, there's a show in, um, in San Francisco on the uh, 12th and then a show in Los Angeles on the 13th of, of February. And then we have some more shows that are going to happen in May, uh, some stuff on the, the East Coast. And 
but people can go to my website, dweezelzappaworld.com, and, and look at the tour dates and, and things. But, yeah, love to have people come check it out live. And uh, throughout the rest of the year, we'll do some more Zappa Plays Zappa stuff, probably play some of my songs. Like, maybe we'll open for ourselves, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of... Um, cool things that we're going to be able to do uh, musically uh, this year. So uh, anybody who's interested in checking out some new stuff should come check it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's really cool. Thanks very much. Fucking thanks for coming on. Very, <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thank you. Very neato. Very neato. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.